You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Steve, the situation with COVID-19 coronavirus is continuing to expand. In the United States now, we're in multi-states, New York, Silicon Valley, uh, Washington State, Florida, Rhode Island. What do you think's going on? Well, we're beginning to see the emergence of hotspots, of epicenters, Kirkland being the most visible and, and contested. Kirkland, Washington, Kirkland, suburb Washington, Seattle. suburb of Seattle, home to Microsoft. Yep. I don't think there's any coincidence that we're seeing cases surface in the tech center in Seattle and Microsoft and the tech center Silicon Valley, California. These are places with enormously high volume of traffic back and forth with China. Yeah. So if you're going to have, a, you know, you're going to have a concentration of virus in those areas. The other thing that's happening, of course, is now our attention is turning to testing these folks as, as these cases are surfacing. We're also breaking out of this problem that we had where we weren't getting out of the box in terms of doing testing. We're seeing some progress made over the weekend. They're loosening the conditions under which they'll test, and they're trying to expedite the arrival of test kits and licensed vendors. So what we're seeing right now is the proliferation of reported cases. We now have two deaths in these hotspots. Two deaths in the United States. In the United Both States. Both in Washington State. Yes. And we're seeing the expansion of testing. So what this means is that in the coming days and weeks, we're going to see a steady rise in the confirmed cases and a proliferation of more and more of these hotspots around the country. And it's going to feed the fear and anxiety around this because it's going to beg the question of preparedness and what do you do? And is the public aware of this? And, you know, all those congregational communities like we've seen, retirement communities, nursing homes, schools, all the communities that are congregational are going to be ones that come under stress about how do you protect them against a virus where that is highly contagious, carried by people who are not symptomatic and may not know that they have this virus. So this is different than seasonal flu. It's much more contagious and it's much more difficult to know. And so communities that interact with folks who are coming onto campus to provide all sorts of services it's going to be highly complicated and difficult. So has the response been adequate? We've t- we're talking about testing. Health Secretary Alex Azar was out this weekend on the talk shows taking point for the administration. He says we need to get seventy-five to 80,000 tests done in short order. Are we behind the curve here? Are we about right? Where, where are we? Well, we are way behind the curve on on testing and scrambling to catch up. And what has happened is that Early in the outbreak, uh, CDC made the decision that they didn't want to go with the WHO test, that the CDC wanted to develop its own test and then have that licensed to labs around the country and outside the United States. That was the plan. What was the reason for that? I believe that uh, CDC wanted to have a technically superior test. Okay. It is a technically challenging task of trying to test for this specific virus. It's a novel virus. It also, you know, a coronavirus is circulate as common cold. So you and I and everyone else has some genetic evidence 
of being exposed to coronaviruses that are circulating around the world. Right, and we need to know cold. what is COVID-19. So we have so COVID-19, it, right. so it's a technically challenging thing. So CDC had encountered difficulties with this, and it went through what was most recently, as of last week, the third generation. So there were all of these delays, and the criteria for which they were testing were very narrow. And so, you know, we had under 1,000 people tested as of last week, which was, you know, given how much time had elapsed and, and the progression of the outbreak, it was a huge vulnerability and an embarrassment uh, that we find ourselves in this. It's more than an embarrassment. It's a crisis. And so Secretary Azar and others have been on a crash basis trying to move things out. And so the decisions were taken by the FDA, by the secretary, CDC, and others that they're moving towards licensing uh, laboratories at universities and private sector labs that will be permitted to expand testing. We need to get to 10 or 20,000 a day. Secretary Azar was saying that it looks like we can, in the, co- in the course of the next 10 to 14 days, get 75,000 people tested. So things are taking off. And as I said earlier, as that testing program expands, we're going to reveal the presence of this virus in our society and within our population, and it's going to reveal a re- to us uh, a reality that we couldn't see before this, and it's going to stir, I believe, quite a bit of a reaction of people. Well, what do you mean by that? You're saying that the virus was dormant here and we didn't know it? or the, the virus is circulating. I mean, just in the last couple of days after the incidents in Washington state that revealed a cluster, an epicenter, a hotspot, the scientists who've done the genetic sequencing on those samples uh, from those cases in Washington, the Hutchinson ran, ran this testing this weekend and came back and said, look, there's thousands of cases circulating mm. in Washington state. We just haven't recognized them. We haven't seen them. Keep in mind, 80% of the people who are infected are either asymptomatic or have mild illness, and this is flu season. So for a lot of people, it doesn't cross necessarily cross your mind that you've got COVID-19. When you're in the middle of flu season and you're feeling mildly ill and it's short term, uh, where it gets more dangerous and more complicated is, is if you're in that 20% who are uh, getting quite sick and a 5% ICU level and fatality rates at, you know, we're not clear, but 2% in some cases of the data, 2.3% from the data we've seen out of China. Presumably, the more severe cases, some of them have been reported. We don't know for sure, but they're probably getting misdiagnosed So because we- we're not testing for them until now. So what do you think we're looking at here in the United States? Is there a potential for this to get out of control? It's too early to say what this will look like. What percent of the American public will be infected by this with what health consequences? We have to face the possibility that this could infect a sizable proportion of the American people. The public health community in the United States recognizes this possibility and is on its toes and sitting on the edge of its seat, aware that we face this possibility and we need to think ahead about this because as we move into a period of of greater testing and seeing the rise of reported cases, 
we're also going to see the worried well, the population of people out there who are anxious but not necessarily ill, flooding our health system and demanding to be tested and demanding to be given care. And we're going to face this problem of how do we deal with that phenomenon while also trying to capture who the true cases are and get them in, get them isolated, tested, adequate care. Obviously, there's a race now to try and protect the supplies and stockpiles of gowns, gloves, masks, ventilators, oxygen, palliatives, all of those things, infection control in clinics and and facilities, protection of the workers, health workers and health providers. All of those are going to be essential steps. The other vitally important step that's going to be taken is the social distancing. As this spreads, if it does reach higher and higher levels, we will migrate towards uh, getting people to isolate by suspending going to school or working remotely or not going to church and not going to sporting events. This is what everybody I know was talking about this weekend, is getting mentally prepared, if not physically prepared, for social distancing. So everybody I know this weekend going to the grocery store and stocking up on provisions, right. stocking up on gloves and masks, um, talking about you know what's going to happen if we are isolated from our normal life for any given period of time. What would that look like? Are we going to be able to go out and visit our neighbors even? And what do you do when you, with your parents or your relatives who are living in very well-run uh, retirement communities right. or nursing communities where there's high congregation? And there's the entry into those communities of lots of workers who provide lots of important critical support services. How different is that from the Diamond Princess, potentially? We face- From the cruise ship, you mean? Yes, from the cruise ship. How different is that when you look at these institutions that their value is the fact that they congregate? Their value is that they provide relationships and solidarity and a rich life. But in a situation like this, You need to sort of unwind that temporarily. Well, how do you do that in practical terms? So we face a lot of those decisions. I want to make one point here, which is, okay, certain things, hand washing, suspend, you know, shaking hands and hugging and greetings will change. We've already seen that happen. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of fist bumps going on. Yeah, it's people are already adjusting their their behavior. It's very interesting. While we're waiting to get the tools we need, the vaccines, the therapies, which aren't going to be coming for some time. We're going to be relying on social distancing, these sort of other measures that protect health workers and control infections. We are going to be overwhelmingly reliant on leadership at all levels in order to keep people calm and aware of what the situation is and to make sure that people have trust and confidence in their leadership. And I mean that in terms of not just the White House. The White House has problems of mixed messages and confusion of messaging, and it needs to correct its course and and be much more coherent and deliberate and honest and candid to the American people. But you're going to see governors stepping in, as we've seen across the country, governors becoming highly active, and mayors and other elected officials stepping forward and communicating to their constituents. Let me go back to the White House for a second, though. But the White House seems to have the absolute best people working on this, no? Certainly, if you look at um, Tony Fauci at NIH, 
Robert Redfield at, at CDC, Bob Cadillac at HHS. Ambassador Burks. Ambassador Burks. These are renowned and respected public health experts Absolutely. and scientists who have distinguished themselves over the years in many different settings. And should give the United States great confidence that the top people are on this, right? Yes. Okay. And keep in mind, I mean, if, when you look at the United States, and this is something Tom Frieden wrote a piece recently that I found very illuminating in which- Tom Frieden, former CDC Former CDC head. director. Yeah. He wrote a piece, it was a very interesting piece in which he said, look, the United States is not a perfect system by any means. We've, we were very divided over our health system. We're a society cleaved about whether we should have the Affordable Care Act or not. But on public health matters, CDC is an exceptional entity. It's 14,000 professional staff, another 10,000 who are contractors, professionals. So we have this enormous asset in terms of technical expertise and experience. We've got another 200,000 public health professionals who work at the state and local level around the United States. So these people need to be empowered and supported to the maximum extent possible. CDC exists in order to support states and municipalities. We don't live in a unitary hierarchical system. And this is a point that Ron Klain made when he was the Ebola czar. I'm only the czar in name and in name only was what he commonly says. And the, his point is we're in a decentralized system, governors, mayors, others, have enormous power. They have to be supported and equipped to be able to do the best they possibly can. So I guess what period. I'm getting at, though, is are we in danger of this very serious issue becoming politicized like everything else in America becomes politicized? It's already become highly politicized, which is a dangerous thing. We've seen the White House turn this uh, into this is merely a plot, a hoax, this is according to President Trump by the Democrats in the media following the failure of the impeachment process in order to discredit and damage the prospects of this administration getting reelected. So that is a very unfortunate turn of events. Hopefully that we move beyond that and get ourselves back onto something where we have a shared threat within our society that requires concerted bipartisan cooperation. On that last point, I think what's important to watch is what happens on the Hill on the supplemental. We need an infusion of cash on an emergency crash basis that can go out to the states and municipalities and support them and reimburse them and ensure those stockpiles and staff support and all of the other supply chains issues. We need that to happen. It needs to happen fast. Congress is in the driver's seat at this point. The administration came up with a fairly modest proposal of one and a quarter billion of new cash matched by reallocation of existing, another billion and a half to add up to two and a half. The Hill is looking at all sorts of options that are in the eight to $15 billion range. That is gonna be terribly important in demonstrating bipartisan concerted action and being able to move fast. How do fears about the economy complicate this equation, Steve? Well, we've seen this phenomenon in China and elsewhere, and we're going to see it here, which is the dislocations, the disruptions to the economy happen with rocket speed, and they can get out in front of the virus itself, right? We're in an integrated global economy. We've already seen things happen to our major 
firms, our multinational firms, pick your sector, right? It's consumer electronics, aerospace, industrial manufacturing, automotive industry. We're seeing disruptions in supply chains and markets. So the transmission of dislocation into the economy is extremely rapid and it's fierce. And it sets off, obviously, great fear that this will have political damage to President Trump in his prospects for re-election because his argument to his constituency and to the American voter is that the economy is extraordinarily strong and, and he should be re-elected on that basis. So this is a threat there. It's a threat to the vision of where we are. And it also, as a practical matter, we face a public health emergency, which we've been talking about, right? How do you prepare, testing, laying the groundwork, communications, but we're also going to face a system of dislocation of our economy, which is already unfolding. And how do you deal with those two things side by side? I mean, look at what the Chinese are struggling with. You don't want your economy frozen in place at the same time that you're trying to deal with the consequences of this virus. But how do you manage those two, keeping people at work without stoking infections at the same time? So it's tricky. It's very tricky. And hopefully we don't face the excruciating trade-offs that the Chinese face in Wuhan, Hubei province. God forbid we face something as, as advanced as that outbreak. And we're nowhere near that point. But we are still seeing the tensions. And we're seeing the political tensions where this is becoming politicized. And it's not just on one side of the fence. You see also Democratic leaders being very harsh in their criticism of Trump that's taken on a strong partisan angle to it. And this fear about what is happening in the economy motivates people to be overly optimistic that this is going to be short term, that it's not going to be as damaging as it might be. There's a fear about if you put too much attention on what's happening on the virus and the outbreak, that you will uh, invite an overreaction on the economic side. So there's been a hesitation or reluctance to be too forthright about what the scenarios might look like. Steve, thank you very much. We'll check back in later this week. Thank you. 